you might imagine that the study of classical art in Oxford has a long history, but that's not so. Uh, one of the greatest classical art historians of all time, Sir John Beasley, taught here for 50 years. But he taught only Greek sculpture insofar as it illustrated Greek texts, since this is what the statutes required, and since Benjamin Jowett had declared that art history might be all right for women, but not for young classicists. <laughs> Beasley's own speciality, Greek vases, was only taught for examination some years after he had retired. Things are different now, and both art and archaeology are busy subjects, especially now that the School of Archaeology has become established. Beasley's other interest was ancient gem engraving, and he collected a formidable number of impressions, photographs, and even electrotypes of them, as well as publishing a major collection, the Warren Gems, which are now in Boston, in an exemplary way. Uh, we mustn't think of gem engraving as an elitist art of antiquity. Uh, tens of thousands of ancient Greek and Roman gems are known. They have a history, and they display an iconography of their own, which is quite distinct in many ways from those of the sculptor or the painter, with original uh, compositions and figures that last in the engraver's repertory for centuries. Not the least of their appeal is the study that goes with them of how they were collected by connoisseurs and scholars from the Renaissance on. There were even ancient collections formed by rich Romans. There's a special interest in the influence they had on the arts of the Renaissance and later, uh, quite apart from the record they carry, often of unique scenes and subjects of antiquity mythological and historical. We're quite used to the neoclassical in architecture and sculpture, not least in Oxford, but we might not realise that a major source for the Renaissance and for the neoclassicist arts of the 18th and 19th centuries are the many gems found in Mediterranean lands and even in North Europe, carefully collected, drawn and studied by artists of the day and a continuing source of productive and original research. Uh, this study has been one of the objects for the Beasley Archive here, which is installed on the top floor of this building. And we've been busy over the years with the study and publication of several major old collections, as well as some new ones. So, thanks to the impressions and electrotypes which had come to Beasley from the 19th century scholar who had studied them, we were able to reconstruct and publish the Great Marlborough Collection of Gems, which was in Blenheim Palace until they were sold at the end of the 19th century. It, it included the collection of Lord Arundel, perhaps better known in Oxford for the marble statues in the Ashmolean, but which included a great Renaissance collection of gems made by the Gonzagas of Mantua. This is a study that embraces far more than just the record of antiquity, and I'll give you a taste of it by talking about one major collection which we in the Beasley Archive are at present preparing for publication. You may know its home. Yes. A few stops up the line from Newcastle at Annick Castle. Splendidly restored 13th century construction a measure of its owner's good taste is that they invited Canaletto to make paintings of it, <laughs> several of which are on display there. 
It's the home of the Dukes of Northumberland. Can you see these things clearly enough? A bit less light might help. Yeah. Oh, that's probably better. Okay. That's better. <laughs> it's the home of the Dukes of Northumberland, but the family name Percy is the one which is most familiar from the 18th and 19th century when the collecting was done. It comprises engraved gems and cameos from ancient to 19th century, all classical or classicising in one respect or another. Gems have been as much a prize for the Grand Tour collector of the 17th to 19th centuries as was statuary. Several major collections were made in Britain, of which only two or three of major importance remain intact, or nearly so. Uh, that at Annick Castle, which we'll look at, the Devonshire Gems at Chatsworth, and the Worsley Gems at Brocklesby Park. The massive collections in the British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum derived largely from other private collections mainly of the 18th century. The Annick gems aren't exhibited in the castle, and so far as I can judge, they never have been, except for a rich selection which was used in an exhibition in Japan on the art of gem collecting in 2008, which was studied by one of our collaborators in this um, uh, enterprise, Diana Scarisbrick. About half of them were the subject of a fairly rare publication back in 1924, and I and a team from the Beasley Archive here in Oxford are busy with a new and complete publication in the modern manner with big photographs and colour and the usual academic commentary. Most were collected by Lord Algernon Percy, Duke of Northumberland among other titles, at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. <coughs> Earlier on in the 18th century, the first Duchess, Louise, had made a small but distinguished collection which was largely dispersed, but for one or two pieces. You must remember that what I'm going to show you are objects measured in millimetres, almost all of them set in finger rings, despite the apparent monumentality of some of their subjects. Uh, this is a surviving example of one of Louise's gems, set in a ring, as you see. A probably Renaissance cameo, showing the fall of Firethorn. You remember the story, he had ventured too close to the sun in his chariot and got burnt up, so we see his body amid the debris of horses and chariots and wheels. <coughs> the composition corresponds with part of a drawing of the scene by Michelangelo, which is now in London, and thereby hangs a tale. The Renaissance artist's copying of classical gem themes and their invention of new ones is an important part of the history of gem engraving, and Annick is rich in relevant examples, as we shall see. Meanwhile, I shall show you just one more cameo to gaze on before talking about it. Algernon's father had secured for his son the services of a French tutor, Louis Dutens, who accompanied him in his travels on the continent. 
this being a relatively late stage in the procession of grand tours of noblemen from England. Dutens was a very good scholar and art historian, author of several scholarly works, and he had a good effect on the young Algernon. He pointed out that desirable antiquities didn't need to be as large as marble sculpture, and a special effort was made to collect gems, that is, engraved intaglios and cameos. <coughs> In this, they were very successful, and at one time, the Annick or Beverly collection comprised over 300 pieces. For its fortunes, I must also now make a diversion and talk about James Tassie. Tassie had learned from a Dr. Quinn in Dublin how to make fine glass paste copies of gems, both intaglios and cameos. Some of Quinn's products were in Lady Louise's collection. Tassie returned to London, later went on to Edinburgh, compiling a catalogue of casts which he could provide for collectors, since the collecting of gem casts was already a well-established practice, thanks to many Italian publishers. And you'll find in many a country house in Britain now cabinets full not of original gems, but of very fine, very often coloured glass impressions of ancient gems, which they had chosen from Tassie's catalogue or other catalogues, rather like choosing a selection of Belgian chocolates. <laughs> His final catalogue had a frontispiece showing Athena admiring her own collection. <laughs> the catalogue comprised descriptions of more than 15,000 gems. It appeared in 1891 and included over 300 Percy gems, while admitting that not all were still in the Duke's possession. Tassie's main patron was the Empress Catherine of Russia. She was a greedy collector of gems, and her agent in Britain had got wind of the Percy collection. She decided that she wanted the best of them, and she paid handsomely in 1876. Later she complained that they didn't send her the best, which was not quite fair, because the very best only arrived with Algernon and Percy after 1876. So many of those listed by Tassie are not now at Annick, but in the Hermitage at St Petersburg, where they can still be recognised, and we're working on them as well. And this isn't the end of the problem with Tassie's list, because there are about 70 pieces which we've been able to locate anywhere. Perhaps they're lurking in some unopened box. But what there is at Annick, nearly 300 pieces, are more than enough for any connoisseur or scholar. <coughs> in many ways, it's not the ancient context or classical explanation of several of the gems that is the most interesting. The Renaissance collected, copied, and invented gems with classical themes, which then influenced other arts. Their activity was enthusiastically followed by the neoclassical artists of the 18th and 19th centuries. Algernon acquired from a French collection a group of cameos, ancient cameos, that had belonged to Cardinal Grimani, some of them published by Aeneas Vico in the early 16th century perhaps the earliest publication of gems in, in drawing anywhere, and taking some liberties with accuracy of detail, like ignoring the shape of the gem and putting the figures in a rectangular frame like a picture. The cameo that you're looking at is one that he drew. It shows Eros at the left, a tiny figure leaning on a, um, a stick, a thersos, attending a musical party with a satyr and a nymph sprawling on a lion skin. 
Uh, she's has a cup in one hand, is waving a sprig about in the other. He's playing double pipes. And the lion skin is spread with the lion's head at the bottom front here. This was a, a, a favourite base for scenes of this sort, both in antiquity and in, in the Renaissance. This use of cameos and copies of cameos by Renaissance artists who copied them for <coughs> classical subjects and poses not met in major sculpture is dramatically demonstrated at Annick by a comparison which has only recently been observed. Cameos mounted on a pin for wearing. Um, many others were mounted as lids or in the lids of snuff boxes so that the noble owner could display them. Here we have a youth fishing from the back of a goat fish, a Capricorn. And since this was the birth sign of Octavian, who was to be Emperor Augustus, it's thought that this is a commemoration of his victory, his sea victory over Mark Antony at Actium there being good reason to believe that this was celebrated on several other ancient cameos of which this is one. Octavian's nautical birth sign guaranteed him victory at sea. Does the posture of the youth remind you of anything? <laughs> Here's Adam on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Michelangelo was a colleague of Cardinal Grimani who owned the gems. And here's Michelangelo's drawing in the British Museum, which he took from the figure, preparing it for the Sistine Chapel ceiling. There's an unusual satisfaction in handling a work of art that Michelangelo had studied and copied, and there are several more at Annick and elsewhere. <coughs> this is a more conventional scene, borrowed for an ancient cameo from major art, Hercules shouldering the Erymanthian boar, much as he might on Metapia at Olympia. One of his labours, as it was very often portrayed in other media in antiquity. And here's a water nymph emptying her vase, only a fragment this time. Uh, studies of the naked or near-naked were also, of course, very popular with Renaissance copyists and in the neoclassical period. Uh, many of these are fragmentary, but they are kept, sometimes they are restored either in stone or more commonly in gold. The cameos that I've shown you are of sardonics, cut so that the layers of the darkened light are picked up in the design, white for the background, then layers of darkened light which the engraver carefully picks out for details, hairs and faces. These belong mainly to the late Hellenistic or early Roman period and can't easily distinguish because this was a time in which classical art was still largely in Greek hands, even when produced for Roman masters, as can be judged by the signatures on many of them. These were stone cameos, sardonics usually, but some cameos were made of real glass, prepared in layers, a very rare technique and used not only for ringstones, but for larger plaques with quite complicated scenes, and of course for major works, mainly vases like the Portland vase. Several are represented in fragments in the Annick collection. And where's that come from? Yes, sorry, I've, um, 
I left out Cupid as a very popular subject. He's seated beside an altar here with this wreath going around it, on which there's a, um, a, a tragic mask, and he's gesticulating towards it. Masks and scenes from the theatre were very popular in antiquity and also uh, very much copied. But coming to our fragments of a, a glass, this is an actor with the mask, his mask pushed to the back of his head and wearing a big dark cloak, <coughs> approaching a muse seated with her, with her lyre, uh, a boy holding a basket, it's not quite clear what, it might be uh, the mystical Vanus of Bacchus, and uh, a column with a vase on it in the background. This was part of probably a big oval plaque with several other figures in the scene. There's a, a, there's a very fine, large cameo glass plaque on show in the Pompeii exhibition in the BM last year. The grandest of the relief gems, which is almost in, in the round, is this one, a Renaissance piece of the 16th century, uh, signed on the back by a well-known artist called Nassaro. The subjects and the style are classical, but they're treated for a rather different market. The setting is gold. The stone for the main figure is a jacinth with a ruby set up in the hair at the top. The lady with the naked bust might well be meant for Cleopatra, who was a very popular subject, and there are traces on one breast where just possibly a snake may have been attached. <laughs> <coughs> Intaglio gems for setting in finger rings are far more common from antiquity and were also much copied in the Renaissance and in the heyday of the neoclassical periods of the 18th, 19th century. Uh, most of those at Annick are ancient, but it's not always easy to be certain about the difference between ancient and Renaissance and neoclassical work. Uh, portraits abound, especially of gods and heroes, philosophers and of the Roman imperial family. I'll show you a selection. You might well understand that the photography of these is a very difficult um, matter. My colleague, Claudia Wagner, in the archive, who has studied gems for many years, also learned how to photograph them properly. In the old days, I used to do it with um, Kodak and film. Uh, nowadays, it's digital. But the problems of photographing these tiny objects, which are highly reflective, possibly the translucencies, sometimes even photographing from the back rather than the front, are dire. And for most intaglios, we rely for close, detailed inspection of the actual subject on casts made in plaster, or initially in plasticine, or whatever. Um, here is a, a fine warrior, an intaglio. The uh, photograph here depending very largely on straight reflection from the background, pouring a libation over an altar. He's probably meant for a Roman Empire, but, but I only know one other stone with just this subject, also in an English private collection. The god Hermes is rather more familiar. This has been partly lit from behind, not totally successfully. He's naked. He's showing pacing forward on tiptoes, this rather uh, odd pose which was adopted in the Neo-Attic arts of the first century BC in rather mannered style. Here's a far more popular motif. Diomedes, with Odysseus, who isn't shown in this version, has stolen the Palladion statue of Athena from Troy, 
possession of which will guarantee Greek success. And he's making his escape, clutching it by night, whence you have the star on the, uh, on the moon and the star up above. He's leaping across an altar before which crouches a figure of a god who has been attacked and in many versions is shown to have been killed by Odysseus. It's a very popular subject in antiquity uh, with copyists too. Uh, Oxford has one of the most elaborate ancient versions showing both Diomedes in this pose and Odysseus approaching, made by the master Felix, a, a Latin nickname, presumably, probably Greek-born. Eros, or Cupid, a very popular figure for ringstones in both the Hellenistic and Roman periods. Here he's unusually riding a seahorse, a hippocamp. A great variety of sea monsters supplied subjects for engravers, ancient and modern. The Greek Kitos monster was to provide the image for Jonah's whale in later centuries. Homer and the Trojan War was always a popular source for artists, though not always in the episodes narrated by Homer. Thus the Diomedes episode we saw, not in our two Homeric poems. But this is an unusual scene in which Apollo in the middle is stopping Achilles, who looks rather fed up about it all, from following a Trojan to, in, to within the walls of Troy. He's just disappearing. You see the back view of him going in through the gate of Troy. It's an odd choice, but this was a surprisingly popular subject in antiquity and chosen for several Roman gems and cameos. Signed gems were also very much coveted. They're comparatively rare in antiquity. Uh, here's one showing a seahorse again and uh, signed by Pharnakes. Pharnakes ep, epoi would have been the complete. And of course it's in reverse because you'll get it round the right way when you made an impression of it on, on wax or clay or whatever. We have his name also on other gems and it's a subject which was much copied by neoclassicists. Uh, these are ancient signatures, but the 18th century and the years when Algernon and Percy was collecting Granite Castle was a golden age for new engravers who cut portraits of contemporaries or, very often, copies or their own versions of familiar ancient cameos and gems. And they signed them proudly, not pretending to be offering something truly ancient. They weren't forgers. There are several with famous names at Annick. Uh, Nathaniel Marchant was a leading figure and he made and signed see it on here, this portrait of the Emperor Hadrian's favourite Antinous, the ancient original for which then lay in the Marlborough collection at Blenheim. Another signed by Marchant uh, at the top there, again in reverse, is this very original composition of Eros uh, driving a chariot drawn by or powered by two boars, uh, not a subject for which it's easy to find an ancient parallel, although Eros's chariot can be drawn by a very wide variety of creatures. Samuel Birch was another prominent engraver he created this unusual study of Heracles 
pondering his career. This is, this is original, so there's no ancient source to this. He's looking rather, rather weary and, and thoughtful, leaning on a column to which is attached an oval plaque showing him seated and the Queen Omphali facing him. Omphali is carrying his club. You may remember the story, they exchanged dress. So Heracles has a distaff in his hand probably and she's carrying his club. And he's looking down at a pile at the bottom of his feet where there's his lion skin and club and also the distaff which um, he held for, for Omphali. One of the modern Percy gems was a study of Heracles supporting the collapsing body of the Amazon Hippolyta. This is rather a distortion of the ancient tale and it's using an iconographic scheme of Achilles supporting the dying Amazon Penthesilea but for a different subject though still of course with an Amazon. Anik has the original and a copy made by uh, the engraver Harris, who signs himself Aris, you see, you don't worry about H's in the... Uh, <laughs> but he's supporting the, 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 the collapsing body, she's got her Amazon Pelter shield, and this was a scheme used on antiquity, not for Heracles and Hippolyta, but for Achilles and Penthesilea. Another 18th, 19th century engraver was Raid, who was inspired by portraits of a beautiful laundress, and made a number of studies of women's heads based on it. Their, head, their hair bound up in various ways, sometimes with a snood, otherwise loose like this in a rather more modern manner. All this neoclassical engraving wasn't wholly a matter of nostalgia for the past, but it used classical motifs freely to record or commemorate contemporary occasions. My last two cameos were family commissions in the 19th century, commemorating the lives of two of the women of the household, but with classical motifs and in the classical manner. One is of a grieving woman bending over a gravestone with a wreath on it. The other, the ancient motive of Eros or Cupid, leaning on his upturned torch and mourning again at a small altar. It's a colourful and rich collection, a tribute to the acumen of what became a family of collectors with taste and the right connections. It would not surprise me if there were others comparable in English private houses. They don't take up much room and they're easily overlooked or forgotten by their owners. And there's no need to worry about uncertain or illicit sources, since for the gems there are thousands, some known since antiquity, many since the Renaissance, and the time of the Grand Tours to admire and rediscover. If nothing else, they demonstrate that classical studies can still generate a remarkable range of absorbing academic, art historical subjects, which may be long removed from classical times, although not from the spirit of classicism. And the Anic Gems are not the only preoccupation of the Beasley Archive upstairs here. We've got a big website including pictures of gem impressions of 18th, 19th century collections. We're working also on a French and an Italian collection and importantly on a series of more than 600 drawings made in the 19th century of gems in English collections by the artist and engraver Lawrence Natter. This we're doing in collaboration with the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. There really is no end to this subject. Thank you very much. Yeah.